All right, I think we'll get started. Um, and so welcome, we're glad you're all here. Uh, my name is Bill Garvelink, I'm a senior advisor here at CSIS. And uh, we have with us today Dean Esposito, who is the director of the Office of Food for Peace in USAID. I think attached to her, uh, is her bio, was her bio attached to the, so she started out as a presidential management fellow, mm -hmm. worked in the State Department a little bit, the Refugee Bureau, then came over to work with us at AID. And Bill was my boss, full <laughs> disclosure. Uh, a long time ago. A long time ago. <laughs> and she worked in OFDA, actually on Somalia was the big thing, uh, so that was a while back. 91, 92, yeah. the first famine, first famine there that I worked on. And then she was in the Office of Transition Initiative, she was in the Africa Bureau, she's been a private consultant and she's worked for the NGO PACT in Ethiopia and Kenya, and then now has come back as a political appointee right. to, to run the uh, Office of Food for Peace, which is a very different kind of place than it was a few years ago. Yeah. So with that, I'll turn it over to, to, to Dina, and then after that, I'll probably ask her a question, and then we'll open it up Good. to questions. But could we Good. just run around the room a minute quickly and, uh, so she knows who she's <coughs> talking to? Could you say who you are and what you do? Just a one-liner. So please. I'm a research associate at Global Health Policy. Uh, my name is Dina. I used to be an intern here at the Career Chair, now I'm at Research Group. Okay. Uh, I'm Dina. Uh, I'm a student in charge. I still have a job for Institute for North America. Okay. I'm Amanda. I'm here with Grover Park Group, and I work in government affairs. I'm Kelly. I'm here with the EEOC Research Foundation, working in development associate. Dan Holodnik. I work in the CSAS Middle East program as a research assistant. Dana Spock. I work for Citizens International, which is a health and nutrition related NGO. Okay. I've actually worked with Food for Peace on a bunch of things. Good. I'm Andy. I'm studying international development and human rights at American University. Hey, I'm Dan. I'm studying at the LA School of GW in international development and human resources. I'm Alicia Rodriguez. I'm the Senior Program Development Officer for Counterpart International's uh, Department of Nutrition, Health, and Humanitarian Services. Okay. I am Kristen Wedding, the Deputy mm -hmm. Director and Fellow at the Global Food Security Project here mm -hmm. in Korea. Okay. I'm Zach Silverman. I'm the Policy Associate at the U.S. Food Nutrition Coalition. I'm Aisha Lerner. I'm working for a U.S. instrumentality in Somali government and transportation. Mm -hmm. Okay, wow. I'm Laura Dienick. I'm the coordinator of the project on U.S. leadership and development here in CSIS. I'm Jane Welch. I'm an intern in the Operation Peace Program. Wow. Well, Bill said to me, well, it's going to be, be very basic. There's not people with a lot of background in food security necessarily or food assistance, but I have a feeling that uh, some of my comments will be maybe a little too simple for some of you, but, but feel free to dig in uh, in the question and answer period if I don't get into the topic areas that you want to talk about because it is a really broad field and there's a lot of different ways we could, we could go with it. But I just wanted to start with really a, a simple overview. Um, I think uh, some of you may know that the U.S. government is the world's largest supplier of food assistance in the world. Uh, we last year gave more than one and a half million tons of U.S. food aid uh, to 48 countries, uh, predominantly for emergency response. The lion's share of our work goes for humanitarian assistance in emergency settings. We do also do development um, assistance programs and we can talk a little bit about the difference of the in, in those if you'd like after after my comments. Um, uh, we provide about 40% of resources going to the UN World Food Program, and we also provide assistance through uh, a, a wide array of uh, private voluntary organizations or non-governmental non organizations. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the long history of what we call in-kind food aid. Uh, for those of you who don't know, in-kind food aid refers to food that's purchased in the United States and then uh, shipped abroad 
and provide it to partners who then in turn provide it, we provide it in kind, if you will, to partners who then distribute it. Uh, so I'd like to talk a little bit about that, that program and then say a word about our new uh, cash programming. We had uh, in fiscal year 2010, uh, late that fiscal year, we received for the first time ever $300 million from Congress to do uh, food, uh, emergency food security programming with dollar assistance. And this is uh, dramatically changing the portfolio and the way we do our work. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that. And then we can get into the career side of it. Um, the in-kind portion of the food program is really a very, very long-standing partnership between government, U.S. farmers, agribusinesses, shippers, and many others who work along the commodity supply chain to provide food assistance around the world. And uh, it's precisely because this program is both seen as demonstrating the generosity and compassion of the American people to help hungry people and creates jobs in America that it has had a very, very uh, long-standing history and tremendous support on the Hill. Um, and the, I recently came across a flyer, the journey of U.S. food aid not produced by our office. As, and I was like, where did, where did that come from? And if you look on the back, it's done by the maritime industry uh, because American shippers benefit very much from this pro program. And I'll pass it around because it does, I think it's just very interesting the way they describe the program. Um, it provides food for the hungry, jobs for Americans, and generates goodwill around the world. And that's the basic message that you get um, uh, on, on the in-kind food assistance and why it is so enduring, if, if anybody wants to see it. Um, Did it also ever check with you at all? The, no. I mean, I don't know how, when it was produced. I actually found it in somebody's, uh, you know, bookshelf uh, in the office. I'm like, where did that come from? Uh, so, yeah, no, not that I know of. Um, but it does hint at the level of stakeholder commitment uh, and the complex politics that surround the program, and it is very complex politics around this program. Um, the U.S. began providing humanitarian food aid as early as the 1800s, early 1800s, um, and into the early 1900s, but the program as we know it was created by Dwight Eisenhower in 1954 when he signed into law the Agricultural Trade Development Assistance Act, which is often referred to as PL 480, and today even though that term is, is obsolete in, in some ways, there is no PL 480 reference in the law legislation, it's often referred to as that. 1961, President Kennedy put the food aid program into the newly created USAID. So the program actually predates AID, uh, but it was uh, renamed by President C Kennedy the Food for Peace program, and George McGovern was the first director which I learned, uh, which I'd actually heard, but if you read the Outlook section on Sunday, there's an op-ed by George McGovern and what it's like to lose a presidential election. And he talks about the fact that he was selected to be the first Food for Peace director and how it changed his life. And he went on to be a long advocate uh, to, uh, in the world of uh, combating uh, hunger. And uh, so it's interesting to see, to see him still talking about that at 90 years old. Um, so I think all of you know, and before I get into our program, to just recognize that really U.S. government's efforts to tackle global hunger took a giant leap forward uh, with President Obama's Feed the Future initiative. And I know that Ambassador Gar Garveling could speak much more about it than I can, but I would just say or note that as you, I think many of you know, in the aftermath of the global food price crisis in 2009 when food prices rose, um, so high that for the first time a billion people were determined to be food insecure and uh, I think it brought sharply into focus the idea that we had to dramatically increase agricultural productivity if we were going to feed the nine billion people that are estimated to be in the world by 2050. Um, so food assistance in itself is not sufficient to promote food security. There had been a long-standing gap in U.S. and world efforts to boost agriculture and in, as many of you know, the president made a $3 billion pledge at ICUA to, uh, to boost agriculture and promote nutritional interventions. Um, those, that commitment is over and above the $1.5 billion we, st we spend on food assistance every year. Uh, it was very clear that uh, as important as this program is, we didn't want to double count it. I think the U.S. government recognized that it needed to be additional money, and I just I think it's important. Um, to note that we have not only now uh, the largest food assistance program in the world, 
but a major leader, again, in agriculture. Um, and we can talk a little bit about how these things relate or, or don't, if, if you'd like. Uh, how does food aid fit into that changing framework? Two areas I would highlight. One is uh, this real focus on nutrition, and the other is on the um, expanding to more market-sensitive approaches uh, through our cash programming. On the nutrition piece, um, for those of you, I know some of you are working on nutrition, uh, probably could explain better than I um, the importance of good nutrition early in a child's life. I think the evidence, the weight of the evidence and the research around that right now has um, just so much traction and it's such a compelling story that all of the global health programs and the food assistance program are really looking at how we can better uh, address uh, undernutrition, uh, malnutrition around the world. Um, we know that physical and cognitive um, damage that results from poor, resulting from poor nutrition is long-lasting. It cannot be reversed. So you really need to address it between uh, the moment of conception to the child's uh, end of the, to the second year of life. And if you don't hit it at that moment, there's no going back and you can't fix it. And um, Josette Sheeran, from, who was the head of the World Food Program, very often used this graphic to, to display the impact of undernutrition and malnutrition on a child's development. And this is showing brain neurons in a normal three-year-old and those in a malnourished child. And I can just uh, pass those around. But um, the fact that we know it affects human capital and productivity, and we know now that there are economists assigning actual GDP losses when you have a, you know, a reduced um, uh, capacity in your workforce is really capturing the attention of world leaders and is capturing the attention of donors. And so you're seeing all of this churning, I think, around it. Uh, on the food basket, we are committed to um, completely revamping the Title II food aid basket. Uh, we have added, uh, based on three years of research, which we've done in concert with Tufts University and the Friedman School of Nutrition Science, we have uh, a three-year study which culminates in a set of recommendations on how to reformulate the food aid basket and we are taking uh, steps to do that. Um, we are adding vitamin D to our uh, vegetable oil. Uh, we are changing the micronutrient mix for all of our flours and corn meals and all of our milled grains. We're changing the micronutrient formulation of food that we give to malnourished children based on the science, uh, often referred to as corn soy blend, which is one of the products that we use and we're adding additional new products. One of those new products is called ready-to-use therapeutic food. Uh, the European version is called Plumpy Nut or Plumpy Dose. This is a US government uh, spec that is generic, so it doesn't have a branded name. It's simply called ready-to-use ther therapeutic food. It is a peanut butter based. You're welcome to pass them around. Um, it is a peanut butter. Uh, yeah, have it on a bagel. Uh, very sweet. Uh, very soft, peanut butter based. It does not need to be refrigerated. It does not need to be mixed with water. It does not need to be cooked. Um, and it has revolutionized the treatment of malnutrition because mothers can um, go to a clinic. If their child is determined to be malnourished, they are given uh, this product and instructions on how to use it uh, with instructions to come back so their child is monitored at the clinic. But she does not have to admit the child to a hospital. As a result, many, many, many more children are served because Getting a child to a hospital for a mother in a rural African setting, for example, is extremely difficult. Very often those children don't go to the hospital or, or can't get to the hospital and therefore are not treated. So you've had a dramatic reduction in fatalities due to malnutrition. And uh, the U.S. government has, quite frankly, not been part of that story until this year when we finally <laughs> managed to start producing it. We're looking at producing ready-to-use supplementary foods, which is a similar product, but is used to prevent malnutrition as opposed to treat it, and uh, a variety of other, uh, of other similar types of products. Um, we're also engaging in a, a wide range of research to look at uh, cost-effectiveness of these products and how we can get the best impact for the least cost. These products are extremely expensive, much more so than the traditional food basket. And um, we're doing a set of research that's looking at what is the impact of using a ready-to-use food, what is the impact of using a corn, uh, newly formulated corn soy blend with vegetable oil, what is the impact of some different um, approaches to, uh, to, the, to distributing food assistance in the hopes that 
we can better target and save some money even as we use these more expensive products. That's going to be a huge challenge for us. Um, on the emergency food security program, if I could just, I did want to just share this as well. For those of you not familiar with the impact of, of undernutrition on a child, this picture um, shows a child who is seven years old, a normal child with normal height, and these children who are four years old, uh, one is four and one is seven. And you can see that the seven-year-old who is stunted looks approximately the same height as the, as the four-year-old. Um, so I just share that. Um, a second major sea change for the food aid programming is the emergency food security program, this cash account. I think it was uh, like a really a hard-fought battle by former administrator Andrew Natsios, who worked, I think, very hard to get this cash account into our hands. <coughs> and we're just completing our second year of programming. The purpose of the cash account is to provide um, cash for food security programs when in-kind food is either not fast enough to get there in time or is not appropriate to the context, particularly if mar markets are well-functioning and food is available but people simply can't access it. So the bulk of the resource that we have goes for local and regional procurement of food, and that's um, instead of buying food in the United States and shipping it, uh, we give resources to partners um, to buy it either in-country uh, because sometimes there's a surplus in one part of the country and a deficit in another, so we want to move that food to the place where it's needed, or in, an, uh, in the regional market, somewhere in a neighboring country close by. And what we're finding, and the research is just coming in on this, is that it is, as one might expect, much more efficient to buy food locally and to ship it locally. There are some exceptions to that. Uh, processed foods can be less expensive in the United States, and certainly when shipping to Latin America, sometimes it comes out about equal. So it's not always the case that it's cheaper. There are some other problems um, that we're finding with food aid quality and food aid safety that make local and regional procurement a little bit more difficult. At the height of the Somalia famine, we had a much needed, uh, and the drought in Kenya, we had much needed locally, regionally procured food that was turned away from the port because the moisture content was too high, twice. So suddenly you're in a situation where you have a major emergency response and the food that you're counting on to fill your pipeline is not considered uh, safe. So there are, there is no magic bullet and no perfect tool as far as I'm concerned. There are some cases when uh, the local, the in-kind food from the United States is just the right uh, medicine, if you will, and others when it's not. Um, you do have to, uh, the other reason, uh, the other way we use it is to on the demand side, we're able to give people cash or vouchers so that they can uh, take that cash or voucher and go to their local market and buy the food that they need on that market. Uh, the voucher program is a little bit different from cash with a nutritional focus. Those vouchers sort of say, look, you're going to buy this kind of food, nutritious food. You're not going to take that cash and buy soda or go uh, drink it away or do whatever. So there, there is a, a blend. Sometimes it's a cash program. Sometimes it's a voucher program. Uh, the voucher program in Haiti, just to give you an idea, idea of how it works, uh, for a uh, vulnerable group in the aftermath of the earthquakes and in a drought-affected area, uh, there was a uh, program done uh, in partnership, USAID Care, Digicel, which is a mobile phone company, and Abagongu, um, which is the government of Haiti's uh, Down With Hunger campaign where um, the client, if you will, gets a swipe card and they get a PIN number. So they go to their merchant, their local merchant, and they hand them the swipe card. The merchant types in an access code, confirms um, that how much money is on this swipe card. So they, they find that out on their phone. They, in turn, then are able to give the client the food that has been designated up to the amount of money available on the card. They then enter into the phone how much money uh, they gave, they spent off of this card. They hand the phone to the client who then types in the PIN code to confirm that that's correct. And that information is then sent to a central location all, so that all of this information is compiled and sorted. We know how much the vendor is due, how much you have to pay that vendor, what foods were purchased, and Digicel sends that over to CARE. CARE then pays out the vendors on a regular basis. So you can see 
how dramatically different that is in terms of uh, you don't have to ship food, you don't have to package food, you, have to, you know, you, you determine what the food basket is, you allow that person to go to a market and, and to purchase that food. You're supporting local vendors. Within the context of Haiti and the Feed the Future initiative, we have a major initiative to boost food production in Haiti. So ideally, those <coughs> vendors are selling produ production that was produced in Haiti. So you're supporting uh, local agriculture even as you're providing uh, a safety net for the most vulnerable. So that's an idea of how sort of the Feed the Future and some of these food assistance programs, now that we have cash, can work more hand in hand uh, to boost food security. So you, um, I think it's a, just a really interesting uh, model. Um, a couple of other places where we've used it. Um, in Somalia, when uh, the Al-Shabaab areas were inaccessible to traditional, um, traditional uh, food aid providers, we were able to get cash into those localities. And believe it or not, markets function even in Al-Shabaab areas of Somalia. Market traders know how to move food in Somalia and have always done so, even at the worst of times. And so injecting cash into those food scarce areas actually brought food to those areas. Markets responded and people were able to receive food without the infrastructure of a large food aid program. In Syria, we have a situation where USAID branded food would not be welcome in the port of Syria. We are able to give large quantities of cash to our partner, UN World Food Program, who has mounted a, they're serving a million and a half displaced people in, in Syria right now through, uh, in large part, because the US government is able to provide resources for them to do that. Um, and finally, a word about drought in the Sahel. That's an example where we were able to really effectively combine in-kind and cash food programming. So we started with our, um, with our cash programming. We were able to give people uh, vouchers uh, to allow them to access food, which was in the markets, but at a relatively high price. That meant that men did not migrate. They did not have to leave their families. They were able to stay on their land. And uh, other support was provided to help with, uh, with on the agricultural side. Uh, and then when it became clear that governments were buying up food, WP was buying up food, there was really serious con concern that local and regional procurement were boosting inflation. We were able to mitigate that by then providing a very large in-kind. We prepositioned food um, in uh, the Canary Islands. We were able to provide that food very quickly. Um, to keep the pipelines open without driving up food prices more. Um, we do now ha have a supply chain management system, which has also dramatically increased the speed by which in-kind food aid arrives in places. We have uh, warehouses in Durban and Asia, places in Asia, places in uh, West Africa. And so um, speed has become less of an issue. It used to be in the old days, by the time someone decided to send food, it got there six or eight months after the crisis. That is no longer the case. We can move it in, in some cases three or four weeks. Sometimes it's actually faster than local and regional procurement because by the time you give somebody the money to go out and buy the food, it does take time even there. So, so in-kind food has proven in a number of cases, including in the Sahel, to be faster than local and regional procurement. So I, for one, um, and there are advocates on both sides of this issue, but as a manager of the program, I'm very happy that we have uh, this wide range of tools and that we can apply the right tool in the right circumstance. What it does do, however, is create a much more complex programming environment. And it makes it a heck of a lot more interesting, I think. But you need different skill sets. I mean, we're hiring a full-time nutritionist. We're we have a food technologist now coming on board. We have uh, M&E specialists. We're uh, hiring economists. Um, uh, it's just a different day in terms of, I think, the way food aid works and the types of skill sets that we need. And you know we're still very much in the phase of trying to get our, our folks in the field to understand that it's not just about, okay, there's an appeal out for food, what's the right percentage of US government, and we'll just give that. No, it's, it's just a much more complex equation that we have to sort through now every time we, we undertake a, a response. Um, so I hope that's piqued your interest in food assistance, and I will stop there. Do you want me to do that now? Oh, you got into the business. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I was a presidential management fellow, uh, which I was selected for out of graduate school. I, um, I actually went to Williams College as an undergrad. I was an English and art history major, uh, with an interest in international work, mostly through my interest in art, but not through development. Um, 
I still to this day think that that undergraduate degree served me incredibly well because um, of the writing. I, I spent three years before I went to graduate school doing a lot of writing, both as a reporter um, and um, in other jobs. And to this day in government, you have to be able to write cogently, coherently, and succinctly. So, um, I, and the analytical work that comes with uh, any kind of general BA um, degree, I think, uh, really does come, you know, you, you need that in, in, uh, in development. So. Um, I, but I didn't specialize in development, and when I went to graduate school, I was at Johns Hopkins School for Advanced International Studies. I majored in U.S. foreign policy in Africa and in, in economics, uh, and from there went into the Presidential Management Fellow Program. And um, if you don't know about that program, you should, and I think it's really just a tremendous opportunity to get into government. Uh, you have to be nominated by your graduate school and then you have to go through a fairly rigorous uh, process to be selected by the uh, Office of Personnel Management to become a Presidential Management Fellow. All that does is give you a license to job hunt in the U.S. government. You have to go out and then find the job. There are job fairs and things are much more organized now than when I was a fellow where people actually kind of tell you what, you know, try to draw you in. When I was there it was much more knocking on doors and trying to find somebody who would be willing to take you. Um, and what I did, uh, I was very much, again, and maybe because of my background, interested in human, dimension, human dimensions of diplomacy, and I just opened the State Department phone book and went through the bureaus, and I said, Bureau for Refugees was, sounded really interesting to me. I picked up the phone at 5 o'clock on a, you know, work day, and I dialed a number for the Africa director, and she answered the phone because it's 5 o'clock and the secretaries leave at 3.30. So if you ever want to get a person in the State <laughs> Department, you really should call between 5 and 6 because that's when the, the people that you really want to talk to are answering their own phones. She happened to be a SITES graduate. Um, we had a really long conversation about SITES and all of these things, and she invited me in for an interview. And then I ended up becoming a fellow in, in PRM. And, you know, sometimes I think serendipity has a lot to do with where we end up in our careers. But um, was that, Margaret? that was Margaret McKelvey. Yeah. So I ended up as a fellow. You are expected to do a series of rotations during the two years of your fellowship. And I, had, again, had to go out and find those. Where did I want to go? Where did I want to rotate? I had to negotiate that with the Refugee Bureau. And I did both of my rotations in AID. And it became clear, very clear to me very quickly that I had a much more of an affinity for the work there and, and people. Um, I worked in the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance uh, when Bill was the Africa Director there, and then I served in the USAID mission in Mozambique during the war uh, for three months uh, as a fellow, and I was able to go out to uh, so many locations where populations have been displaced to learn about both the relief and development interventions that were going on in those communities, um, and I was asked to do a lot of writing about those reports. And, and so, um, so that's how I, I got into government. I ended up transferring into aid. I spent a decade there in a number of different offices. And again, I would just say that moving from the relief world into the development world and then back again is also extremely informative. What you've got are these really kind of stovepiped universes where relief people only talk to relief people and development only talk to development people. And I think getting that mix and that sitting in different seats and looking at the same issues has been invaluable to me and it has allowed me to move around a lot and to have people express interest in my working on issues, um, even if I may not have that specific expertise, um, because I've been able to demonstrate success in different types of jobs. Um, I left government when I had my third child. I worked as a consultant, and I would just say that consulting work is a very good way of, uh, again, getting a very diverse perspective because you're working for different clients in different topic areas, but also in terms of families and careers. If you're in government and you want to get ahead, you tend to have to be the first one in and the last one out at night. There really is, you cannot, you cannot be kind of on the front lines unless you're in those, those big emergencies or those high profile issues. It is not a family friendly place to be. As a consultant, what I found was that I was judged on the quality of the product that I produced. I was able to stay in the work world. I was able to be judged by what you hired me to do and, and still get high marks for that work without being judged by 
you know, how much time I spent in the office. And so I think for me, it was a key move. I would never have been able to move up or even probably be sitting in this job if I hadn't actually had the guts to leave government and go out and try something else. And so there are people who will come and just tell you that their career path was to move, you know, lockstep. I got this job, and then I got this job. And I've been very much moving all over the place, betting on the fact that maybe it would all work out in the end. And, and it really has for me. I um, went from consulting. The other uh, you know, ticket I really needed to punch was living and working overseas. And I was able to get, uh, become chief of party, which is basically a director for a large, uh, actually with governance and conflict mitigation program in Ethiopia, and then become a regional advisor for that NGO. Coming back, I called a lot of my friends in government to say I was thinking of coming back to government, and they encouraged me to apply for a political slot even though I did not work on the campaign. And I ended up, again, I think just being very lucky because <coughs> it was two years into the Obama administration. There were all of these jobs that were still left unfilled and um, they were really looking. I think at that point they had gone through a lot of the staff that they had known they wanted who were working on the campaign and they were looking for additional people. And so because I had very strong recommendations from people in the administration who knew me, and uh, I was coming in at the right time. It actually moved very quickly for me. And I've been in this job for about two years now. So, yeah. Good. Thanks. Uh, I, let me ask a quick question that you mentioned early on in, in, in your talk about, about food issues. And I think a lot of people think uh, when you work at Food for Peace, it's sort of a, or at least early on, it's kind of a dull issue. You just move yeah. food around and all that. Yeah. And you said uh, that uh, the Food for Peace program is quite a political program. Could you just talk about that in, in general, what all the sort of the dynamics? Because right. I think it's one of the more fascinating offices in AID. And a lot of yep. times uh, people don't think about the Office of Food for Peace and certainly don't think of it as one of the most political offices within AID, yeah. which it is. Yeah. Um, I didn't appreciate that until I started. Uh, we are renegotiating a farm bill right now. The Food for Peace Act is in the farm bill. Uh, and that's where you really see all the interests uh, coming out. And um, the, the legislation is just filled with all kinds of really arcane uh, details about how one can move food. Uh, you have to have sub-minimums on the amount of processed food and how much is packaged. And certain percentages have to be shipped on American flag. Uh, ships and some of it has to go through the Great Lakes believe it or not there's a Great Lakes set aside so food is shipped up there and then shipped back out to ports I mean it's all kinds of crazy special interests that have uh, made their way into the farm bill and um, so this idea of getting a cash account was seen as a grave threat to those people who had vested interest in kind food and I this this battle predates me but it was a many 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 year battle and I think that the concern somewhat about uh, about whether or not cash programming would somehow hurt the pockets of the American farmer is really diminished in large part because the American farmer does no longer need an American this food aid program to make a buck. I mean, food prices are high, uh, biofuel industry is, is, is pulling in a lot of food, um, and while it's important, it's no longer uh, uh, the first talking point for the lobbyists who go up looking uh, to protect it. Second um, is just that we, global demand is so great that we can use both. There, if, if Congress wants to give us more in-kind food, I would happily accept it as, uh, as long as they will also give me the cash. Uh, because uh, the amount of food that we can ship with cash is actually much less than it was because food prices are so high. If you look at a graph, you're seeing a dramatic drop in the amount of in-kind food that is shipped abroad every year. Um, so. Um, so you have all of the interests. You've got, uh, believe it or not, the people who package food want to, you know, are constantly pressing what kind of bags are you going to use, and uh, you know the con containerized ships versus bulk ships. They all have an interest. The potato board wants us to buy potatoes. The legume people want us to buy legumes. I mean, every day there's some other commodity group coming in and asking us, "Would you please put this on the, t the commodity list for shipment abroad?" Uh, so you deal with all of those folks, um, and then you have um, stevedores, you know, and they actually care about how food is shipped and 
warehousing facilities and the agribusinesses who, who uh, not only buy our food here, but sometimes they buy our food overseas after they buy it here because we're monetizing some of our food overseas. Monetization is a whole nother really arcane practice in food assistance, uh, which is part of our development food program. And I'm not even sure I want to go in there, uh, there unless a lot of people want to talk about it. it is, but it, it has lobbyists who lobby for food aid, development food aid, which is uh, food is monetized and sold for cash to do development work, and others who are strongly, strongly, strongly opposed to it. Uh, and we try to you know, be as agnostic as we can and, and accept what Congress dictates we, sh we should do. Uh, so that we can keep all of the interests, you know, uh, engaged. So um, I don't know if that captures. Or maybe you had well, some other ideas. Well, no, we've it, seen, it, no, it does. We've seen it. It does because I I just experienced a little bit of that because I was a stucky in 2010 to testify before the House Agriculture Committees asking for the cash, and got a beat up royally by both the House and Senate Agriculture. Is just a, they'll would have a horrible impact on on uh, farming in the U.S. And, and food aid is a minuscule part, actually. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you'd think it was the most important thing that was going on in the world. And no, I, I don't think Andrew yeah. Nassios or anybody else wanted to do it on the Hill, so I, <laughs> I, was, I was sacrificed <coughs> to, to take a beating. Uh, and those were the initial discussions of that. So it, it worked yeah. out. But it's, it's a very, very uh, political issue, uh, particularly. You've got more yeah. committees to deal with. Aid usually deals with the House and Senate Foreign Relations Committees and House and Senate Appropriations, you guys have added in the, the Agriculture Committees, which are right. probably the most powerful committees in, in Washington. And uh, so it makes it doubly or more difficult on the issue. So it just, it's, it's not where you'd think the, there's heavy duty politics going on in AID. And in fact, it is uh, big time. It has a big impact on the rest of AID and its budget. So with that, yeah. uh, please. Uh, We'll, we'll open it up to questions. Again, say who you are and ask your question. Mm -hmm. Fire away. Yes. Yeah, some of the provisions of the Farm Bill expired on September 30th. Uh, those provisions uh, are things that we would not be needing to put new money into um, in the next three months. So if, if things were funded and the Farm Bill expired, those programs can continue, but we cannot put new money in or, or cut new, new funding actions. And so we don't see any <coughs> immediate impact of the expiration of those components. The whole Farm Bill shuts down on December 30th, and we would not be able to procure food, ship food, enter into agreements with World Food Program or anybody else to move food. That's the key the key moment, and we're hopeful that um, after the election, <coughs> there's discussion about actually trying to get a farm bill in the lame duck session. I'm, I would imagine we have another extension, is what I'm expecting and hoping for, but that would be disastrous if we didn't get something, and I think everybody knows that. So I think there will be an 11th hour you know, solution to at least get an extension. Public-private partnerships that we have engaged in, we've been engaged in way before public-private partnership ever became the words, right? Because this whole in this this whole operation is based on uh, private interests, private industry in the United States, and so we see it a little bit. I see it a little bit differently. Um, it's very much uh, a business, right? We we issue. We attenders, we want to buy this much food, and industry responds. Um, if we put out generic specifications for ready-to-use therapeutic foods, the industry um, gets together, decides if it's in their financial interest to do it, and they come in with, with bids for that work. So the public-private partnerships that they're talking about really are, um, and I'm just not, I'm not as much an expert on it, but very much in this G9, G8, and G20 work 
uh, focus on enticing um, companies to make commitments, financial commitments, in specific countries overseas. And those countries, in turn, promise to change policies and regulations to make it uh, more palatable for American companies to work in those places. I think it's vital. Um, uh, and I'm trying to, uh, but I'm not, I, I guess I don't see it as quite as, I feel like we're in some ways already so deeply involved in that process in our own way. Um, but I don't see a lot of major change. Um, follow up to the Farm Bill continuing resolution question, I think, but sort of in broader context. Um, on the development food aid programming side, mm -hmm. typically, you know, Food for Peace has made investments in a number of countries mm -hmm. sort of at a certain level. Mm -hmm. For FY13 so far, um, you know, we're looking at Zimbabwe, but mm -hmm. a fairly significant um, investment. Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of size compared mm -hmm. to previous years. I'm curious if that's just a function of sort of the you know, short-term financial outlook vis-a-vis -vis the Farm Bill, or if that's a strategic direction that Food for Peace is moving into mm -hmm. fewer countries, larger investments, yeah. or a combination of both. Yeah. yeah. Um, we really have taken to heart the administrator's call for selectivity and focus. And so, um, yeah, I think the... You have seen that trend. It began well before I got there, where you had a dramatic reduction in the number of countries where we were doing development, but um, more sizable programs. We still have a few places where we're operating all by ourselves, solo, with very small amount of money, and we're asking ourselves, what what are the results? You know, how, how, what's the impact going to be there? So, we are looking, and, and that is why you see the the larger number for for Zimbabwe. I'm Jenny from the Channel Program, and I'm just wondering if you talked a little bit about efforts to or instances of collaboration with third-party countries and where you can draw on your efforts and what kind of opportunities and challenges you see with something like that. Mm -hmm. So sort of tripartite agreements between the U.S., a, the recipient country, and, a and, third, another, country. and another country. Um, we've had a couple of examples of that. Uh, probably no, most notably with the World Food Program for Somalia, where we did a twinning uh, with Brazil, and they had a large amount of in-kind food that uh, needed to be moved. We had legislative restrictions on giving food to Somalia, <laughs> and so we were able to provide, in a very unusual arrangement, um, the associated cost to move the Brazil food to Somalia. And as a way of trying to be uh, show concern and response at a time before the OFAC license was given, that, um, that we cared deeply about uh, the, the hunger in Somalia. Uh, so that was uh, an arrangement that was very much brokered by the UN World Food Program that brought the two, the two groups together. Um, we, uh, in general, our legislation restricts us from um, using Title II money other than to procure American food and distribute it. So we have a lot of limitations on the Title II side as to what we can do in terms of partnerships overseas. Uh, the, um, there is a micronutrient fortification program that is uh, allowing us to perhaps include, uh, and we haven't really started this yet, but fortificant in with our bulk grains so that we can engage in supporting uh, milling uh, industries in third world countries to mill the, the grain and the fortificant lo locally, um, which has both benefits for jobs and in terms of the milling industry. You can imagine that the milling industry in the United States is not particularly interested in that initiative. So um, we have to, you know, again, it's just an example of, of some of the things we have to worry about. Uh, on the, what's I think interesting is that on the in cash side, Feed the Future is really working to um, help countries invest in um, production of high, uh, highly nutritious food products locally so that even things like the RETF, you know, can be produced locally. Uh, and we can um, fuel that if we want to buy RETF locally instead of shipping it. In places where RETF is available, as in Niger, we did not ship it. We bought it there locally to support that initiative. So that's, I guess, maybe more bilateral than, than third party. Um, I think uh, in Haiti, you're seeing Haiti looking to Brazil 
Uh, and that there's an interesting tripartite arrangement going on between the U.S. government, Brazil, and Haiti uh, at, about the safety net. And what does Brazil's social safety net look like? What are its implications for Haitians? And we've had some initial dialogue about how we um, can support a safety net in Haiti that, that helps advance kind of the success of Brazil. But they're, they're more tangential than, than I think some of the development, maybe tripartite agreements that you're thinking about that we have with India and some other places to feed the future. Yeah. Hi, um, I, have a question. I wanted to ask another sort of politically sensitive question. Um, <laughs> what are you going to get at CSIS? Political questions, right? <laughs> definitely don't want to send GM food if they're not going to take it because it creates a nightmare for everybody. We can't get the food in. They won't take the food. It's uh, there have been some <laughs> some some lot of lessons learned there. So I think yeah, we we don't ship GM food to places that we know won't take GM food, and we know those we know now very well what those countries are. We ship a lot of sorghum actually, and I think our sorghum sorghum procurements are up in part because we can't ship corn. Uh, GM corn to, to two of those places. Uh, in some cases, they will accept milled corn if it's not bulk, but milled. Oddly, though, even in, like Sudan won't take corn soy blend, even though there's no way for corn soy blend to really infect their products. Uh, this drives us crazy, as, as you can imagine, from a humanitarian perspective and just a practical <laughs> But uh, yeah, we cannot ship or even corn soy blend to some countries. Mm -hmm. you know, right. big, big, the big players, yep. but what, what role do some of those smaller local NGOs yep. play in, in those yeah. programs? Well, maybe some of the NGO groups here might be better, even better place to answer that than I am, because what we, we are, um, while our front line is to say WFP and, a, and an international NGO, almost always those groups are partnering with local organizations. They just cannot do, do their job unless they're, they're partnered with the right people on the ground. And so that's a step removed from, from where we are. But when we get a proposal uh, from an NGO, usually the local partners are listed and, and the roles and relationships of those partners are listed. Uh, we have, in two countries that I know of, direct relationships with large um, national NGOs, SHARE or SHADE in Guatemala and REST, Relief Society of Tigre in Ethiopia, which have just jumped all the hurdles, financial and otherwise, to be direct recipients of USAID money. I do think that in terms of procurement reform, I think, I, you know, the very provocative question, I think, is whether international NGOs are building the capacity of local organizations in a way that make them self-sufficient, or it's a, does it, is it perpetuating a dependency uh, a dependency, and I, I, I'm gonna, I think that's a question. <laughs> Maybe some of you have thoughts on that. Um, along the same lines, what are the challenges that you guys are seeing um, with on-the-ground implementation of those pilot programs? For instance, with the two cars that are currently mm -hmm. being raised, and what obstacles there are. Mm -hmm. uh, I just have staff who've come back for a big workshop on on the cash learning network what's been learned in Haiti, and I don't know because I haven't heard the brief. Um, in some cases, cell phone technology is not, not ready for this, and so if there's not a cell phone technology, it's much more cumbersome and inefficient, although it still works in some cases. Um, I think the big concern about cash is um, do we have uh, the technical expertise to know 
all the ways that one can divert cash. We've gotten pretty good at knowing how to divert food and what to look for in food diversions. I mean, we're actually pretty well set up to do that monitoring and we know all the tricks of the trade and how food gets diverted. I think we're less sure um, on the cash. I remember uh, WFP, uh, which who's moving in a big way into cash, they really have been, the executive board of the, of the WFP or the donors are saying, look, you really have to get your financial infrastructure in place to get the, the banker types and the finance people and, and uh, electronic fund transfer people really engaged to be sure that you've got all of the protections in place and do the, all the risk mitigation that you can. Uh, other questions? Uh, again, my name is Dan Holonik. I'm a research associate in the Middle East program here. Um, so I know this is a difficult question to perhaps answer because the election uh, determines a lot of the answer to this question and or the outcome of the election and also whether uh, regions like the one that I've worked on uh, can sort of stay under control for a little bit. Um, but I, you talked about the uh, Feed the Future initiative that the Obama administration has put in place and how that's really changed the way that you are looking at hiring, the way that you're looking at sort of the structure of Food for Peace. And I wonder if there are any other initiatives that sort of are on the on the table right now that are change or, or that are looking to change the way that you guys are, uh, are operating. Mm -hmm. There are things that are coming up in the next couple of years that are going to that are planned that are are going to right. change the way you guys yeah. operate. Right. Um, I think what I hope would happen, regardless of the election, would be that you'll double down on both nutrition and agriculture. I think that the trends and the analysis are just so compelling that regardless of which administration is, you know, which party is in power, that you're going to see, I think, more of this. And that the path we've embarked on, on in Food for Peace will probably not change, I don't think, um, because of the election. Um, the one new initiative I do see coming forward now is this uh, initiative around resilience. I don't know if you all have heard about um, the sort of growing international call for development approaches and relief approaches that better build resilience to allow people who are um, trapped in chronic poverty and also in locations which are hit uh, regularly by recurrent shocks, usually natural disaster shocks like drought. Um, what are the interventions, both on the relief and development side, that can help people become more resilient? We can't stop the droughts from coming but we can mitigate their impacts. And the only way to do that is not by always coming back in with humanitarian aid, but by blending our aid and our relief and our development in new ways to build resilience. AID is about to launch a major uh, policy paper on resilience. Uh, <coughs> I think the dates are not certain, but sometime in October or November, you're gonna see both the announcement of the policy and then a series of dialogues and workshops on resilience. Uh, that has the potential to change the way AID does business um, in a very big way. Uh, it also has the potential to be a rather shallow effort, uh, and I think it, it does depend on the election and on whether or not that initiative holds its traction um, moving forward. No, he's been waiting a while. Oh yeah, I, I shouldn't be selecting people I just wait. Um, so this is my final question. So I guess from a from a kind of food relief and aid perspective, how do you think that agricultural subsidies, especially in the United States, affect kind of both your program and your program? Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's a big myth out there that we still rely on farmer surplus and that we dump our farmer surplus because of the subsidy programs where somehow the food aid program is stuck with whatever people produce and we just offload it wherever the hell we can. There is this terrible, I mean, sense about food aid that we're just a surplus disposal dumping operation. Uh, if I could just say this here, uh, and I, say, I try to say it wherever I go actually, we do not, it is no longer, 416B and all of these things that used to exist no longer exist and we do not take surplus food um, from, from Farmer, American farmers because of subsidy programs. We go out on the commercial market based on what our partners say they need and we buy it at commercial rates. So the subsidies don't affect us uh, so much directly on this, this program. 
but I will say that the concern over farm subsidies and all the changes that are going on on the Farm Bill have, in a sense, freed us up to talk about food aid and because everybody's so focused over here on the subsidies that I think there's less attention on, on this, this uh, Title II uh, portfolio. And the lobbyists are certainly all over there working on the subsidies issues. <laughs> Well, we do have this uh, authorization to do development food aid, um, but so I would say two things. On the emergency side, we're very much uh, uh, looking for ways of distributing relief that are uh, asset building for communities. So this, this idea that we go and we hand out food endlessly to people uh, all the time is also a myth. I mean, most people are receiving in-kind food uh, during the lean season or for some number of months. Uh, before harvests or um, to address a, a particular shock. Uh, but in many cases, for example, in northern Kenya, uh, where people are chronically food insecure, WFP has started a program where they are doing a series of uh, water catchments that are providing longer-term access to water, helping people irrigate crops so that the number of months that they actually need food assistance is diminished through the act of giving food, because you're giving food transfer as part of a work or an asset building program where communities come together, identify what what water system they need to undertake, and we're providing the technical support to uh, both get the water catchment built and do some of the training around um, conservation agriculture and irrigation. So uh, if you can distribute food to highly food insecure people and at the same time reduce the amount of food insecurity through your relief program, we should do it. And we, we look consistently for that. Likewise, we're looking at uh, nutrition now in new ways, whereas bulk grains and those sorts of things are great uh, as an asset transfer. They don't have the nutritional impact that we want on under <coughs> so we're changing our, our programs in that regard. On the development side, we have always been focusing our development food aid in highly food insecure places because we have a food transfer as part of the development program and you don't want to be treating, giving food transfers in places where you know where food is available and accessible. So you're going to places which by definition you have a major food insecurity problem, access, utilization, availability are all issues in that place and that's where you determine that the, uh, the, ask the food transfer is appropriate. At the same time, we're already in that vulnerable place. We're providing in our development programs agricultural support to help farmers, small-scale, highly poor farmers, boost their agricultural production. If they're not viable farmers, <coughs> it has a livelihoods diversification component and then a nutrition behavior change component. So we have always seen these development programs as resilience building, uh, development work in highly food insecure places. What the rest of the agency is saying when they see the, you know, you see the resilience policy is, we need to reinforce what programs like the Food for Peace Development programs are doing by layering additional resources in these same communities because our programs only take make a person less poor, if you will. It's not really catapulting them up to the next level. So can we have Feed the Future programs and initiatives, value chains and other things that are either adjacent to or near to some of these areas and what you saw in Kenya was a decision by the Bureau of Food Security to take resources, development resources, and put them up into the arid lands of Kenya where there had been no development program before. So for us, we feel that we're very much leading the way on resilience and that our partners have a lot to tell the rest of the agency. But we've been going at it alone. You know, your selectivity and focus. We're, you know, $5 million here, $5 million there. We're just not chipping away at it fast enough. So this is a huge, I see it as a huge opportunity. I don't think we would change our development programs, but I think we have a whole lot of new partners now in aid and elsewhere who would work with us. I do see us pressing harder on the resilience side on the emergency, as I described earlier. This 
Okay, there, I think I saw three hands. I'm going to stop and pointing at people, sorry. The, He's in charge. So we'll, we'll take uh, yours, yours, and you, and that's it. That's all we'll have time for. So three okay. questions. We're, well, oh, go okay. ahead. Go ahead. Oh, well, just to go along with that, what's your link with the Bureau of Global Health? Like you were talking, talking a lot about nutrition, mm -hmm. and you were talking about, um, you know, food production, storage, this is R2S, and building up local organizations. And I know we have a project through the Bureau of Global Health, but we did that in Uganda. And for five years, we, we mentored a local organization to produce R2F, and now it's switched where we're subbing to them, and they're priding, they're taking over, and they're pushing that forward. Right. So we're very interested in Food for Peace, or uh, Feed the Future, and different um, nutrition mm -hmm. initiatives. But we're having a hard time kind of getting in there, and because we're kind of primarily seen as health. Right. And so I'm just wondering, you know, you're talking about leveraging resources across you know, USAID. What mm -hmm. is your link with the Bureau of you know, Health? Yeah. yeah. This is, um, I think, the, the next, I think we, a lot has been done, but it has been a lot of focus on agriculture. This is, I think, the next, the next moment. And if you saw the roadmap crawl through, you know, where focus on nutrition, this is where we have to go next. And I do think it is a bit of the, uh, a weak link so far. Um, we are, we, we have a, as I said, we're bringing a nutritionist on board, and we have a, some folks who are, who are covering that now or work with Global Health, particularly on um, essential nutrition access. I mean, what we're doing right now with Global Health is primarily drawing in their technical expertise so that our, our calls for proposals are addressing the right elements of, of health as we tackle nutrition in our development food aid programs. And so the essential nutrition actions, you'll see them clearly listed in our programs and our call that our partners are not only, even as they are dealing with this food transfer and providing healthy foods are addressing, you know, exclusive breastfeeding and all of these other things in the, in the program. And um, family planning is actually something that I think is going to be emerging more out of the Global Health Unit and how, because, you know, when you look at the analysis on building resilience, if you don't get a grip on, I mean, family planning in some of these areas, no amount of, in, you know, marginal increase in agricultural productivity is going to make the difference. Mm -hmm. So we're beginning to embark on some some discussion on that component, but I would agree with you that I think it's emerging and more needs to be done. On the development food aid side, um, we do see those development programs as, in, as very much contributing to the Feed the Future agenda of boosting agriculture, raising incomes, and improving nutrition for the most poor. So we have agreed that our all of our indicators for development food aid will be common to the Feed the Future indicators uh, where appropriate. So you know, I don't think Feed the Future has WASH indicators, for example but we do a lot of wash, water, and sanitation programs. So we might have some indicators that aren't your or the future indicators, but wherever we can, especially in agriculture and, and monitoring levels of stunting and undernutrition, we have the same indicators as Feed the Future, and we will re report our results annually to the Feed the Future, into the Feed the Future framework for development food aid. So, yes, yes. Emergencies are different because we don't have baselines and finals, and it's just a different animal. Where, where um, you know, we're so politically charged, not mm -hmm. only charged domestically, but 
Yeah, it can be a murky, I think, sometimes. <laughs> uh, we do have criteria. When we went through, and again, this predates me, but when we went through this large um, effort to reduce the number of countries where we develop meat and uh, food aid, we came up with a set of criteria that are focused on poverty levels, uh, levels of stunting and undernutrition. It's a weighted average. Uh, it's an index with a weighted average for three elements, and that prioritizes a set of countries. and so. We look at the top you know, 20 or so of those of those countries. Uh, that said, there's just no question that uh, foreign policy priorities often drive, the, you know, where we end up. Haiti is a classic case of that. We don't have; um, they're not in the top 20, if you will, but certainly they're deserving, and they are a high political priority. And it's one of our few country few programs in this hemisphere. So. Uh, it makes some sense to, to be there. Um, Afghanistan was one of those uh, where we started a development food program. That turned out to be a decision that maybe <coughs> we, we were closing that program because we simply couldn't monitor it five years on and we got very, we got really zero pushback on that either from the partners trying to do it or uh, the State Department. I think there was just a recognition that it wasn't the right intervention. We still do a lot of emergency work. But um, yeah, I think Burma, you know, will we go to Burma because Burma is the next, you know, important country. Uh, we haven't said no. We don't know what the food, you know, we're just looking at the food security analysis for that. But that's sort of an example of where you might end up in a country that's not in your list of, you know, according to your traditional criteria. Good. Well, thank you all for coming. And please join me in thanking Dean Esposito for being here. Thanks.